Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 for today's reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we come before the word of our Lord. Our God and our Father, we do say amen. This is the word of the Lord. Not just words about the Lord, not speculations or opinions that were written by mere human beings, but these men, this Apostle Luke, who wrote these words, was moved by your Holy Spirit, Father, to record the very words of God that were breathed out by you. And so, Father, we know these words are true. These words are incapable of erring. And so, Father, they command our highest attention and reverence. Father, would you teach us from your word this morning? Would you give us hearts to trust your word this morning? Would you open our eyes and our minds to its meaning this morning? And Father, our hearts to its truthfulness this morning. And would you use your word to continue the work of sanctifying us that you have begun through your Holy Spirit? Father, we love you. We depend upon you. We need you. We pray for your help this morning. And we ask that the words from my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have a friend who recently took a trip to South America in order to spend time by himself. And he planned to take only his Bible... No other books, no other distractions, no other things. He would take day hikes, he would climb mountains, he would paddle in a kayak, he would spend time exercising, and he would spend time reading, and he would spend time praying. And the first day of this trip, he had a whole agenda laid out for what he was going to do during that day, and he got up in the morning with his Bible and a cup of coffee and sat in a little lawn chair or lounge chair, sat looking out at the ocean as the sun rose. And he said he watched that sunrise and it was such a beautiful sight. And as he was reading Psalm 19 about the heavens declaring the glory of God and looking out over that water, before he knew it, the sun was over the top of him and it was noon. And he kept sitting and reading and praying. And before he knew it, the sun was setting behind him. All of his plans had been taken away, and he said, in in effect, my entire day got consumed by that single sunrise. It was so beautiful and spoke to me of the glory of the God who made it so much. And I was thinking about that this week as I was reading and studying here in Acts chapter 13, fully prepared, fully intending to finish out this chapter this week, and then I got caught up in one verse again. And I got caught up in one word in one verse again. And so, we're going to focus most of our time on that one verse and that one word, and then, Lord willing, finish chapter 13 out next week. 
But if you'll remember back with me to last week, we had come to the end of Paul's sermon that he preached in the city, uh, the synagogue in the city of Pisidian Antioch. He preached Christ crucified and raised as the culmination of all of God's sovereign purposes for all of history, as the fulfillment of all of the precious and very great promises of God, and as the realization, as the accomplishment of all of the redemptive work of God in this fallen world. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God who is the incarnation of God the Son, because of all that He is, And because of all that He has done to accomplish everything that He and God the Father purposed and and determined and covenanted together to do before the foundations of the world were ever laid, in eternity past, Jesus is the only way to eternal salvation. He is the only truth. He is the only hope of everlasting life in the presence and the glory of God for all of eternity. And so we saw in verse 41 of Acts 13 that Paul gave from the Word of God itself in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, he gave the strongest warning that can be given to anyone and to everyone who has heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a warning to not Reject it because the gospel concerns eternity. And eternity means eternity. Doesn't mean just a really long time, it means forever and ever. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just religious mythology as we've seen. It's not just some fable with philosophical and ethical implications for us to ponder and to glean from as we try to make our own way through life in this world. The gospel, the word gospel, means good news. That's what the word means. News, good news. And what does the word news mean? By definition. When you turn on the news at night, what are you watching? Are you watching a, a myth? Are you watching a story? Well, you say now, nowadays in the 21st century, we don't know. Maybe it is all a myth. Maybe it all is just legend. Maybe it's just spin. But you remember the days when you used to be able to turn on the news and old Walter Cronkite was on there and, and you knew that what he was telling you was pretty much what was going on. Right? The word news, by definition, means a record of noteworthy information about important actual events that are going on in the world. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. It's not fables. It's not myths. It's not a set of religious or or philosophical ideas. It is the historical record of what God did in human history through His only begotten Son to bring salvation to human beings who are lost and dead in sins and trespasses and who have fallen infinitely short of God's eternal glory. And so, as we've seen over the past several weeks, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that the eternally begotten Son of God, who is God, who is God the Son, purposed and determined and covenanted with God the Father all the way back in eternity past, before the foundations of the world were ever laid, to become incarnate in human flesh, so that He, who is the eternal, infinitely holy God, could shed human blood on our behalf, could make sacrifice that would be of infinite worth and value, in order to pay for human sin and fully satisfy the infinite justice and wrath of the holy and triune God. That's what Jesus did. And you're not ever going to hear better news than that, ever. And the ramifications then of rejecting it are massive. Because again, they are eternal 
Because unless you accept the Son of God's payment for your sin, you will spend eternity paying for your sin yourself. And the horrors of that, of spending eternity, not a hundred years, not a thousand years, not a million years, not a billion years, not a trillion years, not a trillion trillion years. Because a trillion trillions is nothing compared to eternity. It's nothing compared to infinity. And infinity is the quality of the glory that we have fallen short from in our sins. And the only punishment that fits that crime is an eternity of paying for those sins. Unless you know Jesus, whose sacrifice of infinite worth and value pays, the horrors of spending an eternity paying for your sin are absolutely incomprehensible. And so Paul warns, do not reject this gospel. And after preaching that gospel, we saw last week two of the three responses that people had to the gospel that Luke records here in Acts chapter 13. First, we saw the response of initial interest. Right, Everybody was literally begging Paul and Barnabas to come back the next week and tell them more. And we learned that initially positive responses to the gospel are not by any means necessarily genuine responses to the gospel. Jesus taught that in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. And, and we see it evidenced right here in Acts 13 because the second response to the gospel that happened the next week and almost the whole city came out to hear Paul and Barnabas preach, was this. The second response was that the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, who initially had a positive response, suddenly, they're not so interested. They're not so enthusiastic about this gospel anymore. Their initial interest gave way to a jealous rejection of the gospel. Because they refused to repent of their prideful sin. And so Paul said that in that pride and in that sin and in that choice to reject the gospel, they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Exactly like the ones in Jesus' parable in Matthew 22 who rejected the invitation to the king's wedding feast and so they made themselves unworthy of everything that the king had to give. They said, we don't want what the king has to give because what we have is better. And it's all we need. That's where we left off last time with this recognition from God's Word that unworthiness of eternal life doesn't have anything to do with earning it by our merits or not. It has to do with rejecting the invitation instead of accepting it by faith. Because no one's worthy of eternal life None of us on our own merits. God's invitation is free. It's gracious. It's undeserved. It's merciful. It's not dependent on anything that we did or didn't do to earn it. And so in the final analysis, the ones who judge themselves unworthy of the eternal life that Jesus Christ freely gives are the ones who make this horrifying choice in the stubborn pride of their sinful hearts, to reject it. And that brings us here today to the third response of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see here in Acts 13, which is the response of joyful acceptance. Joyful acceptance. And we see that response in verses 48 and 49, in the hearts and the lives of many of the Gentiles there in Pisidian Antioch. Look at those verses with me. When the Jews rejected the gospel and began to repudiate it and began to slander Paul, Paul responded to them from God's words through Isaiah in the Old Testament where God said that that Israel, the Jews were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So now Paul's saying, 
I preached it to you first, and you were supposed to bring it to the ends of the earth, but you're rejecting it, so now we're going to the Gentiles. Now, what does it mean that they were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles? Here's what God means by that. It was, see, always the plan, always the purpose, always the intention of God to bring salvation from sin not just to the Jews, not just to Israel, but to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. It was through them that the light of salvation was intended to come, but it wasn't ever supposed to be limited to them. So in the book of Isaiah, God prophesied about a servant of the Lord who would bring the light of God's salvation to the world, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And not just to Israel. And this servant of the Lord is spoken about very specifically in four particular chapters in the second half of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, God says, He's chosen a servant. He's chosen a servant, appointed a servant to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 6, God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And the word nations there in Hebrew is the word goyim. It's the the word that the Jews used to refer to the Gentiles. It, It just means people from other nations. The peoples outside of the nation of Israel. Then in Isaiah 49, God says that this chosen servant of his would put God's glory on display in the nations, would honor God and would do it by restoring people from their sin. And it's from chapter 49, Isaiah 49, verse 6, particularly that Paul quoted here in Pisidian Antioch when he proclaimed that through Jesus Christ, God has brought the light of salvation to the Gentiles. Then in Isaiah 50, God builds on his teaching about this coming servant and he contrasts the servant who will be utterly faithful. He contrasts this servant with the unfaithfulness of Israel. And then ultimately in Isaiah 53, which is such a wonderfully familiar chapter to us, God proclaims that the way in which his chosen servant is going to bring salvation to the world would be through his own suffering for our transgressions, so that by his wounds we would be healed. And so, see, as Paul was preaching to the crowds there in Antioch, what he was doing, of course, was proclaiming that Jesus Christ is this prophesied suffering servant of the Lord. He is the chosen one. He is the absolutely faithful one who suffered in order to take the sins of all of us upon himself and cause the glorious light of God's saving, redeeming mercy and grace and love to come blazing into the spiritual darkness of this whole sin-cursed world and to cover this world, to go to the ends of this world and to bring the good news of God and the glory of God and all of His redeeming power to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. To bring salvation to the nations, to the Gentiles, to to people from every tongue, from every nation, to anyone who would come and believe, like Jesus speaks of in that parable of the feast in Matthew 22. And when the Gentiles there in Pisidian Antioch heard all this, That the gospel wasn't just for the Jews, that it didn't just come to Israel, to one nation, but that God intended to lavish the whole earth with grace and mercy. They just, they began rejoicing, verse 48 says. They were literally overjoyed to hear this news that the eternal one true God of the universe had loved them, the goyim, the, the Gentiles. And that he'd loved them from eternity past. And that he had sent his only begotten son to die for their sins. I mean, the Gentiles weren't looking for God. The Gentiles were worshiping 
every false idol, every false god that the human mind could ever possibly conjure up and imagine. They weren't seeking God. And now they're confronted with this great reality that God in Christ sought them. That God brought salvation to them. And when they heard that, they rejoiced. And don't think for a minute that rejoicing there means some kind of sort of measured and stoic response. Oh, well, jolly good then. No, 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 no. Rejoicing means hooping and hollering and jumping up and down and singing and shouting and praising God for all that He had done. Verse 48 says, they were also glorifying the Word of the Lord, these Gentiles. Again, they didn't grow up with Scripture. They didn't grow up with the Bible. They were pagans. But here, when Paul preached the Gospel, they recognized this good news as the Word of God. They accepted that what they heard wasn't just Paul's opinion. wasn't just religious speculation. This was God speaking to them. And they did the opposite of what sinners do when they come into contact with God's Word. Right? People who are in bondage to their sin and who set themselves against God, what they do is they suppress God's truth when they come into contact with it. Right? They don't accept it. They don't want to submit to it. And so they twist it. They distort it. They pervert it. They deny it. They exchange it for lies, Paul says, anything, so that they don't have to deal with what God says about His holiness and our sinfulness and our deserving of His eternal judgment and our helplessness, utter helplessness to do anything to save ourselves from it. But here, see, these Gentiles accepted all of that. They extolled God's Word for proclaiming that. They glorified God's Word. Praise God that He's revealed what a sinner I am and how holy He is and how much I deserve eternal hell and what He's done to deliver me from that wrath that is to come. Praise God. Why? Why are they glorifying the Word of God and rejoicing so much in the message of the Gospel? How is that possible? Because and only because the light of the gospel had penetrated the darkness of their minds and their hearts. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And by its power and by the power of the Holy Spirit, these people had believed. They once were lost, but now they've been found. They once were blind, but now they saw. They once were dead spiritually in their sins and trespasses, totally unresponsive to God. But now they've been raised to newness of life. And the reason we know that isn't just because they rejoiced in the Lord and glorified His Word, but because Luke says they had that believing response because, and here's the, here's the sunrise that I got captivated with all week, because they had been appointed to eternal life. You see that there at the end of verse 48? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And that is a profound statement. One of the clearest, most unambiguous statements in all of Scripture about God's sovereignty in, in, in human salvation. Jesus himself said so clearly in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, no one can possibly come to the Father unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So, on the one hand, there is the all-important truth that we learned and that we saw last week, which is this, that sinful people perish eternally because they choose to reject the gospel. 
because they refuse in their sin and in their pride to believe the gospel. And that choice that they make shuts them out of eternal life. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees, John chapter 5, verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not God's fault. It's not Jesus' fault. You're the ones who refuse to come. It's on you. You're culpable. You're responsible, right? John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Eternal condemnation is the result of willful, volitional rejection of the gospel in sinful unbelief and each and every faithless soul is utterly responsible for that horrifying choice. Again, that was, that's the whole point, right, of the parable that we looked at last week in Matthew 22, the king's wedding feast, remember? Jesus said that the unworthiness of the first group, the ones who were first invited, their unworthiness of the feast didn't have to do with whether or not they were good or bad, Jesus said specifically, especially not in comparison to the second group. The difference between the worthy and the unworthy was solely in the fact that the unworthy ones rejected the invitation. And the others, when the servants went out to any and every street and slum, that they could find and invited whoever would accept the invitation to come, regardless of who they were, the others came to the feast. Every person who rejects the gospel in sinful unbelief is personally responsible, personally culpable for the unbelief that brought about the choice of that rejection, right? God didn't make anyone a sinner. God didn't cause anyone's unbelief. It's our sin. We're responsible. And that truth, that reality of personal volition and personal responsibility for sin has to always be held in tandem with the equally biblical truth that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, including salvation, and that He saves whomever He wills, whomever He chooses to save. That's exactly what Luke is saying here in, in Acts 13.48. All of those who had been appointed for eternal life believed. And there are three really important things to know about this word appointed that Luke uses here in Acts 13.48. First of all, it's a verb in the perfect tense in Greek. The perfect tense means... It indicates action that took place in the past, not in the present, but it's, it's an action that is finished, that is perfected, that is complete, that is not ongoing. Second, this verb is in what's called the passive voice. And that just means it's an action that was done by someone to the Gentiles not by the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles who believed the gospel didn't do the appointing. They didn't appoint themselves to eternal life by their believing. They were appointed for eternal life by someone else which resulted in their believing. Got it? And that appointing happened in the past in a way that was completed and not left unfinished or ongoing for them to finish. So, before we get to the third important thing to know about this word appointed, let's just, let's just contemplate that. And let's just acknowledge that it begs the very obvious question, doesn't it, of who appointed people to salvation in the past? And the answer is obvious, of course. And thankfully, it's not just common sense. It's, it's clearly revealed to be obvious in the Word of God. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless it has been granted to him by who? By the Father, by God. 
In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul refers to Christians, believers, who have been raised with Christ, who have been forgiven, reconciled to God, given eternal life. He refers to them as those who have been chosen by God. Very specific language. The word chosen in the Greek is the word eklektos, which is used all over the New Testament to refer to believers, Christians. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the chosen, not just for Christians, but not just the church, but, but the chosen. Many translations say the elect. It's the same word. It means the ones that God chose to save. God's chosen. That's the title that's used for true believers all throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself uses it in Matthew chapter 24. He's talking about the difficult days that are going to come before he returns. The hard suffering that his people can expect to endure in this world that hated him before he returns. Here's what he says in verse 22. He says, for the sake of the chosen, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You're going to suffer, but don't worry, you won't suffer too much. For your sake, I've chosen to save you, and I will cut the days of your suffering short. He says that during those days of suffering in this world while we wait for his return, false Christs and false prophets are going to arise and that they are going to perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even the chosen. You see why he uses the word chosen there? You're going to face suffering. You're going to face deception and false teaching. They're going to try to lead you astray, but it's okay because I chose you. And I'll preserve you. He says that at the end of those days, when he returns, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his chosen, his elect, from the four winds of the earth, from one end of heaven to the other. And again, the word elect means chosen for salvation. All that God has chosen, He has saved, and He will gather unto Himself at the very end. Praise God for that, right? Praise God that it depends on His prerogative, His initiative, His purpose, His will. Luke 18, verse 7 Will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen, who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? God will give justice to all that he has chosen to save. The very same divine purpose and prerogative by which God chose to save us is the same unfailingly faithful purpose by which he promises to deliver us from the tribulation of this world and gather us unto himself for all of eternity. Praise God for his sovereign faithfulness to choose us, to save us, to deliver us, in spite of the fact that in our sin, we could have and we would have done none of that for ourselves. We wouldn't choose him. We wouldn't save ourselves. We wouldn't deliver ourselves. Why not? Because we were dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says. Not sick. Not handicapped. Dead. Like Lazarus in the tomb, dead. Unable to even ask for help. Dead. Unable to call out to Jesus and say, Hey, can you come in here and get me out of this tomb? Dead. Dead is dead. Until and unless Jesus miraculously raises the dead like He did Lazarus. Right? We could, we could go to Lazarus' tomb after He'd been in there for four days. 
And we could spend all day, we could spend all week, we could spend the rest of our lives standing outside of Lazarus' tomb and yelling, Hey, come on! Get up! Let's go! It's, it's no fun in there. It's terrible in there. It's like, it's death in there. It's rotting in there. Come out here into the sun and live! And he's, if, if it's up to us, he's not coming. If it's up to him, he's not coming. Because we can't raise him. And he can't raise himself. I mean, if he was just sick, maybe. right? Even if he was really sick, desperately sick, there might be a chance that he'd croak out, oh, okay, give me a minute. I'm feeling really lousy, but I think I can make it. Right? Even if he was, even if he was like severely handicapped, he might hear us calling and pleading and, and manage somehow to sort of claw his way out of that tomb. But he wasn't sick, he wasn't handicapped, he was dead. He stunk, literally, the text of John's gospel says, because he'd been in there decomposing for four days. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he did. He was raised. He heeded the Lord's call. He came walking out of that tomb. And you've got to know that when he opened his eyes and walked out of that tomb and into the arms of his Lord, Lazarus praised God for doing what he was utterly helpless to do himself. That's what's going on with the Gentiles here. Praise God. That God chose to do for us what we could never, ever possibly do for ourselves. Praise God. Amen. Say it louder. (laughs) That He chose to raise us from spiritual death and to give us life when in our sins there was no more that we could do about it than Lazarus could. Praise God, Romans chapter 5, verse 26, that while we were utterly helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise God, Ephesians 1, 4, that before the foundation of the world, that's when this choice was made by God. Before we were ever born, in eternity past, He chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Praise God. Very next verse, Ephesians 1.5, that in eternal love He predestined us. That's Paul's word. That's not my word. For adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. Praise God that the way that He did it didn't leave any room for me to say, well, I had something to do with it. Yeah, you were out there calling, but I'm the one that dragged myself out of the tomb. No, no, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved Jesus Christ. Praise God. Now, I told you there's a third thing that is absolutely important to see and to know about this word appointed in verse 48 of Acts 13, besides it being both in the perfect tense and passive voiced, so so indicating again past completed action that was done by God to the Gentiles to appoint unto eternal life all who believe in the gospel. The third thing about this word appoint is this. It's a word that comes from the Greek word, the Greek root word, tasso. And that word was often used in the sense of inscribing someone's name on a, on a list, on a roster, right? Like enrolling them into membership, writing their name on an official list. That's what the root word tasso very often referred to in the ancient world. And in the Old Testament scriptures, when, 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 see, when, when Luke uses this word, He's thinking about a reality that God reveals in His Scriptures. God refers a number of times in the Old Testament Scriptures to a book that He keeps that has people's names written in it. And He starts by saying, whoever sins against them is going to have their name 
blotted out of that book. Exodus chapter 32, right? The, the people, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the law, they're down there making the golden calf. And when Moses realizes what they've done, he comes before the Lord and he said, the people have greatly sinned. And he says to God, what I'd love for you to do in order to spare them is to blot my name out of your book on their behalf. But God says, in that time, in that place, no, no, whoever sins against me, those are the ones I'm going to blot out of my book. They'll be responsible for their own sin. In Psalm 69, David prays against the wicked, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled. Here's this word, enrolled among the righteous. And then, in Daniel... Chapter 12, Daniel records this great prophecy about the end of days. He says there's going to be a time of trouble such as has never been seen or known since there was a nation until that time. And Jesus makes it clear that the time of this great trouble that Daniel prophesied about started when Jesus was crucified by godless men in Jerusalem and when the temple of the Lord was desecrated by the Romans and when the entire city of Jerusalem was destroyed and burned. But see, Daniel, when he foresaw all of that, he didn't just see catastrophe beginning with the murder of the Son of God and continuing through the destruction of Jerusalem and then ending with the return of the Son of God to pour out final and full judgment on the world. Daniel didn't just see all of that catastrophe. He also saw the great sovereign mercy of God at work. So he says this, this is right in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12. At this time, when this happens, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And we go, well, wait a minute now. He said that anybody who sins is going to have their name blotted out of the book, but then there's going to be people whose names are written in the book, but all have sinned. How can there be any names in the book? How can there be any enrolled, enlisted, appointed? So God in his sovereign eternal purposes has a book in which are recorded names of everyone he purposes to deliver from his wrath, which is to come when Jesus returns. And when we get into the New Testament, God reveals this marvelous truth to us that the names that are in that book are the names of those people who he has chosen and appointed and enrolled before the foundations of the world to save by his grace. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, he talks about these two godly women who were saved by faith in Jesus Christ, who labored faithfully for the kingdom And he refers to them as those whose names are in the book of life. Not because of what they did, but because of what God did for them. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the church of the city of Sardis. And this wasn't a good letter that he wrote to this church. A lot of people in that church, he says, aren't actually saved They've got the reputation for being alive, he says, but really they're dead. Jesus sees that reality in their hearts. And he pleads with them, he calls for them to wake up, to repent. And he tells the ones in that church who need to repent that there are a few in that church who do have life who will walk with him in heaven, in glory, in eternity, with white garments because they are worthy. Remember back to that parable in Matthew 22, the king who gave that feast for his son and invited guests, and the the guests rejected the invitation, rendering themselves, judging themselves unworthy. So the worthy ones, remember, by Jesus' own definition, weren't the ones who were worthy because they were good, because of any inherent righteousness on their part. 
They were only worthy because in spite of whether they were good or evil, they accepted the invitation. They came. And why does anyone accept the invitation? Why did Lazarus come walking out of that tomb? By his choice as a dead person to respond to the call of his Lord? Or because of the Lord's own sovereign choice to raise him from the dead by the power of his word? So there in Revelation 3, the ones in the church of Sardis who were worthy to walk with Jesus in eternity, they were only worthy because despite their sin, they had been washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, because of what Jesus did to redeem them, their names were written and could never again be blotted out from the book of life. That's Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. And then in Revelation 13 and verse 8, Jesus says that everyone whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundations of the world. So you can't write your name in that book. Only he can do it. And anyone whose names have not been written in that book of life will perish in his judgment. And he mentions this book of life in which the names of people who will live with him forever are written in Revelation chapter 17, where again he says that anyone whose name is not written, anyone who's not enrolled, anyone who's not appointed in that book of life before the foundation of the world will end up in their life in this world worshiping the beast and being judged by Christ. And finally, in Revelation 20, he says that at the final judgment, when Jesus returns, all people will stand before the holy God. And there will be, on the one hand, an encyclopedia set of books which detail all of our sin, all of our failures, every thought, every word, every deed rendering us all guilty for eternity before him. And then there will be, on the other hand, this one book, this book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And only those whose names are written in that book will escape the judgment of God for their sins. Because God wrote their names. Because God enrolled them. Because God appointed them. And Revelation 21, which says that after Jesus destroys this current sin-cursed world and all of the sin and all of the injustice, all of the ungodliness that pollutes this world, he's going to create a new heavens, a new universe, a new, new galaxies, new stars, and a new earth where only righteousness can dwell And only those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life, inscribed, enrolled, appointed by the unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, purely sovereign grace, mercy, and love of our great God, we will enter into that kingdom of everlasting righteousness and peace. Praise God for doing what we could never, ever possibly do. These are all the kinds of words that God's word uses to affirm what Luke is telling us here in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, that it is those who God has appointed from before the foundations of the world for eternal life, those who are enrolled, those whose names are inscribed, those are the ones who believe the call of the gospel and who respond and who are saved. And if you're one of those, should that not just ignite what the Gentiles experienced, this sense of holy gratitude and rejoicing and glorifying of God. So, God's word very clearly reveals to us these tandem truths that are hard, impossible really even, for us to fully understand 
He reveals that on the one hand, all of those who perish, perish because they make this horrifying choice in their sin to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reject the invitation of the king to come to the feast. And on the other side, God's word is absolutely and equally clear that all those who do believe, who do come, who are saved, are the ones who have been chosen by God since before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his sons and daughters according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. And I, it is, I know it's hard to put those two realities. How do, but listen, it's as simple as this. God says it. God clearly says both. And the fact is that his word demands, because it's his word, that we believe both. Even without being able to fully comprehend how they fit together in the perfect and inscrutable and infinite wisdom of God. And I'll tell you this, it is to our peril to try to accept one and reject the other. God's thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts. And so if it seems to our limited, finite human minds, like his word is contradicting itself in this area or in any area, then the conclusion we must come to, because it's his word, is that it's not contradicting itself because he cannot contradict himself. So what, what, what appears to us to be an inconsistency, an incompatibility between two truths that are both undeniably clear as they are revealed in his word, it's not a contradiction. It's just simply beyond the ability of our finite minds to resolve it. But in his mind, it's perfectly true and consistent. Listen to the words of the late, great J.I. Packer, who says that when it comes to this tension, the real difficulties that are, the difficulty that our minds have here in understanding how human responsibility fits together with divine sovereignty, he says the real difficulty is in understanding the realities of God as both king and judge. Right? If God is sovereign over everything, then how am I responsible for things that he decreed? That's the tension. How can he both be king and judge? Here's what Packer says. Scripture teaches that as king, God sovereignly orders and controls all things. Human actions included in accordance with his own eternal purpose. Scripture also teaches that as judge... He holds every man responsible for the choices that he makes and the course of action that he pursues. Thus, hearers of the gospel are responsible for their rejection of it. And if they reject the good news, they alone are guilty of unbelief. Man without Christ, Packer says, is a guilty sinner, answerable to God for breaking his law. And that's why he needs the gospel. When he hears the gospel, he's responsible for a decision that he makes about it. And it sets before him a choice between life and death. The most momentous choice that any man can ever face. And when we preach the promises and invitations of the gospel and offer Christ to sinful men and women, it's part of our task to emphasize to re-emphasize that they are responsible to God for the way in which they react to the good news of his grace. Just like Paul's doing here in Acts chapter 13. When the Jews rejected the gospel, it was because of their wicked choice for which they alone were responsible. And then when the Gentiles rejoiced and glorified God, It was because God had chosen to save them. God had appointed them to eternal life. And so they believed. And in both cases, 
God is to be praised for his righteous judgment of the sin of unbelief and for his sovereign mercy in appointing many to salvation that they would believe and that they would make a choice that they were incapable of making if he had not chosen them. On both sides of the gospel coin, the message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Any who won't will perish because of this horrifying choice that they make to reject his free unmerited grace. And all who do can only give praise to God for the sovereign grace that raised them from spiritual death and caused their blind eyes to truly see. Is is there tension there? Yep. Can you fully understand it? Nope. Don't try to resolve the tension. God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Just give praise to him for the God who he is. We're going to sing this wonderful hymn of Isaac Watts in a minute here. It's one of my favorite hymns. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. And when Isaac Watts wrote this hymn, he was thinking and reflecting on that parable of the king's feast in Matthew chapter 22 and Luke 14. And Isaac Watts was, was, was picturing himself as being one of the ones in the second group of people who got invited after the first group rejected the invitation, right? The, the king's servants, they went out into the streets. They went to any and every place. Don't just go to the rich people's neighborhoods. Don't just go to Beverly Hills now. Go anywhere. Go across the tracks. Every road. Go to the slums. Invite anybody. And Watts was picturing himself as one of those people. Right? Call, bring, bring anyone you could find, regardless of wealth, regardless of status. Just come, whoever you are, vagabonds, beggars, slaves, whoever, right? Watts recognized himself as one of those common beggars. One of the vagabonds, like all of us, who in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, got to come. And Isaac Watts, reflecting on all of that, wrote these words. Verses 3 and 4 of this great hymn. Well, picture him looking at this feast. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? How did I get to come? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when... Thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. You can't put the responsibility for their unfaithfulness on God. They chose to reject the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the reality that God's word truly reveals. And in that hymn, this is the humble attitude that the gospel needs to forge in all of our hearts as as believers, all sinful human beings are being called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to come and be saved by the free grace of God. And many, many thousands will make this wretched choice in their sin, in their unbelief, in their stubborn, hard-hearted resistance towards God they would rather starve than come and eat his food. And so would we have if God had not chosen to save us in spite of ourselves. So all of us who do come, when we truly admire the feast that Christ and his grace are, when we see, when we understand the lavishness of his absolutely undeserved grace by which we have been saved, all we can say is, Lord, why me? Right? I hope that's, I hope that's your attitude. 
I hope you don't have any attitude in you that says, well, the reason I'm going to heaven has something to do with me. Because I vote a certain way. Because I live my life a certain way. Because I make certain choices. Now, it's because he chose you. It's because he appointed you in spite of you. If it was up to you, you would have rather starved than come. And so would I. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I invited? Why was I, like Lazarus, made able to hear your voice? I was dead. And the answer is, not because we're worthy in and of ourselves. Not because something in us was so attractive to God. That it compelled him to invite us. You know who I really want? I really want Steve, because Steve's awesome. No, no. I really want Steve because he's a wretched sinner. (laughs) My wife will tell you the story of a friend of ours, mutual friend. Wendy knew me first as a wretched sinner, wicked, godless person. And then God chose to save me and open my eyes. And Wendy didn't know that, but this mutual friend of ours did. And he started feeding me with his grace and feeding me the gospel. And I had the privilege of being able to teach the Bible up to uh, right, right up there in the house that we sold a couple years ago. Teach the, teach the Bible to, to a group of, of junior hires. And this mutual friend was, was one of the guys that helped out with the youth group. So he goes to Wendy one day and he goes, if you ever get the chance, you got to hear Steve Watkins teach. And she goes, teach what? <laughs> Because all she knew was this wretched sinner. And he said, teach the Bible. And she said, Steve teaches the Bible? No way. God, why was I a guest? There was nothing attractive about me. It was all about God saving a wretched sinner like me, like the Apostle Paul, so that everyone would go, look what God did. Right? And point to the glory of his Marvelous grace. The only answer to why I got to come is because God is mercy. Because God is love. And because in his infinite mercy and love, he chose to redeem me. He chose to adopt me and to make me his child. I mean, do any of us really think that if we are believers in Jesus, it's because somehow God favored us? If we think that then we don't really understand our sin. And we don't really understand the great unconditional grace and love of the gospel. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to close out chapter 13 by taking a look at the specific fruit that the great power of the gospel engendered in the lives of the Gentiles who were appointed unto salvation, who believed and who had their whole lives and minds transformed by the unconditional grace of God and the gospel. We're going to see what happened to them and through them. But for today, we've got to close our time here in God's word as we prepare to sing to him and come to the table where we proclaim the truth of his death for our sin until he comes. Let's, let's close our time by praying together. That the Holy Spirit will, through the power of God in the gospel of sovereign grace, that he will humble our hearts, that he will pour contempt on all our pride, and that he will will forge in us a great gratitude and love for God that leads to growing obedience and holiness, and that it would render in us a love for the lost, whoever they are, all of, the, all of the ones that we might call vagrants and vagabonds out there in the world. And that that love would be a holy reflection of the unconditional and self-sacrificing love that he had for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray today. Our God and our Father, your word takes our breath away. Even a single word in your word Father, is like an ocean 
that is too deep for us to plumb the very depths of. And yet, Father, it is so clearly revealed to us that it engenders in us a great sense of wonder and a great sense of awe and a great rejoicing for the God who you are and for your great love and grace towards us in Jesus Christ. God, all we can say as we prepare to come to this table is how much we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves and for giving us this life and for giving it in abundance and for saving us and for saving us to the uttermost, for redeeming us with an eternal redemption, loving us with a love that will not let us go. Father, humble us, make us grateful, make us love as you have loved us. And Father, strengthen us for the service of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let's all stand together. It's on page 10, this hymn of response, Isaac Watts' wonderful hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. Let's all stand and sing it together today.